Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Seed. You're listening to Wired Dads. It's a show where we uh, we talk about a whole host of things, from feelings to trauma to dads. <laughs> From feelings to other feelings. (laughs) By way of talking about movies that um, usually have a direct dad theme. And in this one, no direct dad theme. No, there's a dad theme. Oh, you're right. You're right. There's actually several, several dad themes, which we talk about. (laughs) Holy shit. I feel like this is your like, welcome to the bell pepper show where we talk about all kinds of bell peppers, (laughs) not just yellow ones. Look at this one. It's green. And I'm like, that's actually a yellow one. And you're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is very yellow. This is this is yellow indeed. I just want to make sure that all Pepper fans know that they're welcome. <laughs> Can you just give a rundown, a quick rundown of what Silence of the Lambs is about? Yes. Oh, my God. I was born for this. Okay. The Silence of the Lambs is about an FBI trainee named Clarice Starling, who we love. And she's played by Jodie Foster. Basically, her former professor, when she was taking some kind of FBI class, at UVA or something, Jack Crawford, is like, there's a serial killer on the loose. His name's Buffalo Bill, and we can't figure it out. And no one who works for the FBI can get Hannibal Lecter to talk because he hates all of us. And Hannibal Lecter is this brilliant incarcerated serial killer, and we're doing a program where we're talking to incarcerated serial killers to try and get insight into what the serial killer at large is like. So maybe you would like to go talk to Hannibal Lecter as kind of an extra credit type thing. And she's like, okay, as I describe it now, it's very disingenuous. Why do they go to her? Well, as Dr. Chilton says in a moment of savviness, you know, that was smart of Crawford to send you a pretty young woman to, what is it? I don't know, a pretty young woman to something, tickle his fancy, whet Mm. his appetite, Mm. something gross. Like Batman Returns, this is also really a film about institutional sexual harassment. Yes, at every turn. But anyway, Chilton is like, you know, Hannibal Lecter hasn't seen a woman in like nine years. I think this was strategic on your boss's part. Tell me a bit about your relationship with Clarice Starling. Yes, so my relationship with Clarice Starling is deeper and more meaningful in some ways than my relationship with my own father. She is my positive career role model. I guess this is also me doing a reparative read on Clarice because like she apprehends and shoots to death a serial killer. But that's not what I think of when I think of why I love her. When I think of why I love her, I think of how she's like, I want to try and understand what's going on and to empathize with people involved in this situation and to the bottom of it and find the girl in the pit. And the FBI is like, you can't use your empathetic imagination to think through a murder kidnapping scenario without going crazy like Will Graham in the immediate prequel. And she's like, yes, I can because I'm not a man and I can confront the sexual crimes of men without confronting the shadow side of my own masculine socialization in 20th century America. And then Hannibal Lecter is like, you don't really want to save that missing girl. You just want to further your career like all these men who've been talking to me. And she's like, no, I really want to save the missing girl. And he's like, oh, my God, you do. That's weird. And that's what I like about her. I love that she is like a character who has this special superpower. 
also the kind of worldview that it crystallizes, I think. And I love that her power is just being like not afraid of herself because she doesn't see violent masculinity within her own nature and therefore able to sort of walk unfazed through what all the men she works with feel as this like emotional shrapnel field. And also that she is just like a good person. That's her big superpower. She's like, I'm a good person and I work hard. I'm not brilliant and I don't have super empathy and I can't like just figure stuff out all of a sudden, but I work hard and I'm a jogger. It's interesting watching horror movies that have a message in one way or another, because you're often in a situation where you could easily and sometimes rightfully cheer on the monster. And in this case, there are two monsters. There are ambitious men, there's careerists, and there's the monster. And sometimes the monsters fight each other like Godzilla and King Kong. Most of the men in this movie are horrible. And Hannibal Lecter is kind of the least horrible. You compare him to, like, (laughs) Frederick Chilton, played masterfully by Anthony Heald, or any man except Barney, who is the Mm. guard orderly guy who basically is taking care of the realm in which Hannibal Lecter lives. He is, like, the gentle Hades of this world. And he is the only good person, aside from Clarice, in my fan fiction, Clarice and Barney end up together. Oh, that's nice. But you you also believe that Clarice is a lesbian. She's a lesbian or she ends up with Barney. Either way. <laughs> Clarice goes in and talks to Hannibal. And Hannibal gives her the dance about whether or not she really wants to do this and mm-hmm. really dresses her down in a, in a very uh, uncomfortable way. He's 30, flirty, and thriving. <laughs> she walks away, and an inmate, who you know the name of and I don't... Multiple Migs. Multiple Migs throws cum on her face, which is so gross, really. When I first watched this movie when I was 16, I was like, <laughs> I have truly gone through the looking glass here. And then Hannibal changes his mind. Mm-hmm. Is Hannibal changing his mind and helping Clarice related to this? Or does he use this as some sort of scream? Well, okay, good question. Because he does say, I changed my mind. He says, discourtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. Yeah, he's like, as compensation for you being a <laughs> victim of poor etiquette, I'm going to give you a clue. <laughs> And that illustrates this thing that I know that you don't like a whole lot. That that really sort of puts the exclamation point on the fact that like Hannibal is an organized serial killer. Like what is what is the what is the breakdown yes. between these two? He doesn't like this disorder. He's so smart. He's a doctor. He can really be an asshole to a lady about her cheap shoes. He does anagrams. <laughs> Only smart people can do anagrams. <laughs> but yes, and, and so there's this whole other realm of what happens in Silence of the Lambs that speaks to a cultural phenomenon that you don't love, as I understand it, about kind of painting the FBI as as what? As just also a mastermind. I'm just against masterminds conceptually. I'm like, you know what? Everyone literally or spiritually is a little 22-year-old FBI trainee with a ponytail and a sexual harassment problem. The thing with FBI profiling is like, it was a good idea, but like it was never a science. And trained profilers, like sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're really wrong. The whole concept that humans are able to know with perfect certainty what someone else did or was thinking or why they did it. 
I'm against that because I don't think it's true. And I think that we use it as an excuse to project our ideas onto other people and then punish them for something that they may never have actually thought or did. Mm. It creates this sort of like heroic, almost like a superhero department within the organization. Yeah. We know that's not true. So on the one hand, Clarice really makes the FBI look good because she's their representative and she's the scrappy little underdog. But then on the other hand, we see how like the best protagonist available in the story was someone who's like not really within this organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's trying to be. But like in a way, her skills are counter to what the organization has learned to value. That seems like an idea in here, too. Like, I think one of the reasons, too, that this movie is so, so fascinating to me for so long is that it has really good ideas and also really bad ideas. We'll be talking in this episode about some of the bad ideas really in depth. And those weren't the bad ideas that I went in initially that aware of or thinking about that much. But I always knew it had really bad ideas from the perspective of how it talks about who the police are and what they're capable of. And it's it's a movie where what it's able to say about like how the FBI isn't as infallible as they would like to be and how easily they're undercut by, again, like someone with almost no training, no experience in the field, just like going on gut instinct and the basic decency of not being a man. Maybe Thomas Harris is the one who really hates himself for his own masculinity. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I do like about the movie quite a bit is that it can absolutely and should should be cautiously read as explained in this episode, Copaganda. I do think though, again, as you just said, the hero of the movie is someone who is barely in the organization yeah. and whose primary intuitive skill sets are being a sensitive person. All of the men we see within this organization are sloppy. They're they're mostly predatory to some degree. I do want to ask one other question that we didn't get in the episode itself, which is, can we talk quickly about the dad motivation here? Because I had totally forgotten yeah. the entire story about Clarice's dad, both in rewatching it and just now at the beginning mm -hmm. of this introduction. <laughs> I mean, the serial killers do pull focus, but like, how would you describe that story? Clarice was close with her dad. Clarice's dad died uh, prematurely. How did he die? He surprised some robbers. Oh, and he got shot. Yeah. He was a town marshal in West Virginia. And she had to go and live with other family and it didn't go so well and then had to leave that family. Yeah. And that's where the story of her being with this other family as a, essentially as a foster child is where the the name Silence of the Lambs comes from because there's a sad and weird and visceral story about sheep. Yes. And as someone who grew up next door to a sheep, little sheep farm, I appreciate that story. I actually, as a child, had uh, lamb rescue fantasies. Oh, what is the situation with her in the in the lambs? So this is why I think Manhunter should be called the Silence of the Turtles. <laughs> Basically, after Clarice's father dies, she's sent to live with her aunt and uncle who have a sheep ranch. One night she wakes up and she hears the screaming of the lambs because they're being slaughtered, the spring lambs. And so she goes to the pen... This is going to make me emotional. I've seen this movie so many times that I'm remembering Jodie Foster's performance. It's so great. And something I love about this this little monologue she gives is that originally they were like going to go to Montana and film some stuff there and do a flashback. The legend goes that like, you know, they shot her 
performing that monologue. And then Jonathan Demi was like, well, I guess we're not going to Montana. Oh, that's amazing. They were like, well, why bother? Like, it's effective enough. You're Jodie Foster from Carney. Like, you can act the hell out of anything. <laughs> <laughs> and they just piped in some little wind sounds, basically. But the story is that Clarice, she wakes up, she hears the screaming of the lambs. She goes to the pen, she opens it, she tries to let them out, but none of them try to run. You know, they all just stand there. And so she picks up a lamb and tries to run away with it, but she doesn't have a plan. She doesn't know where she's going to take it, and he's really heavy. Someone, of course, immediately finds her and the lamb and kill the lamb. And I think Clarice today is running one of those, those farm animal sanctuaries in Lancaster, PA or something. I love that. I hope that that is true. I really love this part. It's a story about like trying to do good in the world and the world calling you an idiot. Yeah. And so she doesn't have a dad, which obviously is not great for her in this situation because she loved her dad. And then here she is having to oscillate between new dads, Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Yeah. And Jack Crawford. It's like, these are your choices, sweetie. <laughs> and a career. I think that the daddy of this show is like any old character actor. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that about us. It's consistent. I do too. So that's a quick rundown of our relationship with Silence of the Lambs. Those are all the reasons why a person might like Silence of the Lambs. And now we're going to talk about why a person might reasonably hate this film. And that's historically an underrepresented position about this movie. Yeah. So we reached out to Harmony Colangelo, who we like a lot because she and her wife, BJ, have a show called This Ends at Prom. Our sassy sister show. Our sassy sister show that we we launched at pretty much exactly the same time. So Harmony is a trans woman and has reason to not love the tone that this movie set for trans people in the uh, in the 90s and beyond. And honestly, for the last 30 years, yes. which is like more endurance than any piece of pop culture can be expected to have. Or like maybe it is because of the fact that it created such strong anti-trans propaganda that it has partly lingered so strongly. It reverberates today, which we will talk about in this episode. What stood out to you about this conversation? Just that it was really fun. I hope that we went through kind of the entirety of the case against the Silence of the Lambs. And yet it was like, it was a, it was a really funny conversation. And I think Harmony is like very smart and saying things that need to be said here and also doing it in a really funny and delightful way. And I really enjoyed it. I totally agree. And, and, and I do want to say that Harmony also uh, is the author of a book called A Year of Queer Cocktails. Harmony is an extraordinarily celebrated bartender. So you can you can read up in some queer cocktails. One of them is a, a friend of Dorothy, which came up on uh, one of our uh, on our Clueless show. Yeah, I think that any one of these drinks would perhaps pair nicely with the film of your choice some evening. For sure. Um, all right, let's do this. Let's do it. Why Our Dads is made possible by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work all over these here United States. If you need some work done that involves video production, please get in touch with Knack Factory. And it's also made possible by you. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. 
We appreciate it so much. It makes the show possible. It makes production possible. Patreon supporters get bonus episodes that happen pretty regularly, uh, sometimes weekly, sometimes twice a month, <laughs> somewhere in there. We just did an episode about the animated Hobbit from the late 70s. And in our next bonus episode, we're going to talk about The Last Unicorn, which apparently many people have feelings about. So if you can support us via Patreon, we're at patreon.com slash dads. Thank you so much to all who can. And if you are not in the position to do so, we totally understand. We just like having you here because it gives us an excuse to do this weird thing. <laughs> and one other thing, we're making these Spotify playlists to accompany each episode these days. Uh, I think this will be our fourth. You can find it in the show notes and we'll also share it on Instagram and on Twitter. They're super fun. Sometimes we have some input from the guests. Sometimes it's just stuff Sarah and I put together, but it's songs inspired by the movie and our conversation about the movie if that's something you want to check out again show notes twitter instagram hello i don't want to interrupt your major melon consumption sarah marshall (laughs) but hello hello alex steed here we are we made it how did you come into major melon as a which is a mountain dew product it appears once again we're not promoting any of these products i just don't like coffee very much so yeah (laughs) i have enjoyed a mountain dew in my tenure on this earth i associate them with weird (laughs) all-nighters and so i was online grocery shopping lately which is a practice i have I've really embraced. I kind of like the weird lottery of not knowing whether I've asked for a quantity or a weight or a volume. Just surprise me. You know, I don't feel anything anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. I feel too many things. And so I was browsing the Mountain Dew selection and Major Melon really popped out at me because I really love melon flavors, improbable flavors, and weird off-putting mascots. And this one had all three. <laughs> It has a a watermelon that's wearing a melon shaped helmet, which is like me wearing a wearing a Caucasian colored helmet. Yeah, it's a very bizarre with a melon slice kind of tucked into the side of it, which is like you having a slice of your your own flesh <laughs> or another human being's flesh tucked into your hat, like a feather into a fedora. The soda has some dark implications. <laughs> and we're joined by a wonderful guest. Uh, wonderful guest, can you please introduce yourself? A wonderful guest also i do want to say before you even get to introduce yourself has an a roseanne style afghan behind them yes it's i think it's called a granny square afghan i love a granny square okay wonderful guest please announce yourself um i mean clearly the more important thing is the afghan but <laughs> no one can hear that so uh yes i am harmony colangelo yay harmony tell us some things about yourself where we may read you or listen to you tell us your media tapestry oh tapestry well it's not quite as weird weaved as extravagantly as the Afghan that I'm on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. There I uh, post all of the, the writings and random, really just chicanery that I get into. It, it runs the gambit from Yu-Gi-Oh memes to ska arguments to whatever nonsense I do on top of my mostly trans and movie related articles that get published and you have a podcast yeah i'm really bad at promoting it (laughs) uh yes i host this ends at prom with my lovely wife bj and uh, i guess canonically we're we're your spawn aren't we your spawn are we your 
Whose spawn is who? We launched the same week or within a week of each other. Yes, but like I think canonically people tend to think of you as our parents because you are <laughs> why our dads and we are the teen girl podcast. Aww. I love that so much. I love that relationship very much. I like how anytime we address you, you refer to us as dad on Twitter. I, it's it's very <laughs> lovely. I love that too. And I also love we kind of materialized at exactly the same time, which is a fun thing. Because August of 2020, which is like August, I always find to be kind of a rough month. It's like that's the point where summer has really bored a hole in your will. Yes. We're like, we got to bust out of this, if only by opening a door inside our brains. What is the concept of this ends at prom? How does it work? The concept was actually originally supposed to be a recurring panel, but you know, six months into a quarantine. Uh, a lot of freelance money dried up by that point. So we went, <laughs> oh, hey, we're going to just launch a podcast because my wife is a huge fan of teen movies, mm. like just all of them. It's basically that and like Lifetime Channel original movies are pretty much like her yeah. addiction in the cinematic world. It's beautiful. And uh, I watched pretty much none of them. I uh, tend to watch a lot of cartoons when I was coming up nice. or, you know, doofy teen boy movies like uh, <laughs> Euro Trip got watched an unhealthy amount yes. against my will. I know these movies through the ads that they would have on TV for like a month. So I remember seeing ads for a month that was like Michelle Trachtenberg going to take her top off. Michelle Trachtenberg taking her top off. If there's one thing you remember for the rest of your life, kids, it's that Michelle Trachtenberg takes her top off. What's really funny is she she doesn't actually. Oh, my God. God, well, they implied in the commercial that she was going to take her top off. Hey, it turns out you're wrong about it. Yeah, there's a lot of breasts in that movie. That's kind of its, like, main jam. And then there's a lot of uh, old man wiener. Do advertisers lie? Oh, my God. <laughs> Pretty much the only thing you need out of Eurotrip is that uh, Scotty doesn't know, and there you go, you're done. I'm also curious if, if you would ever do a podcast where... Has BJ watched enough teen boy comedies and cartoons for it to be worth it to to do it the other way? Uh, we actually do that on our Patreon. Ooh. Oh, tell us of the Patreon. Might as well plug that while we're at it, which I'm also really bad at plugging. But uh, yes, we call that the Sadie <laughs> Hawkins dance. Very nice. nice. Because it's the teen boys, you know, getting asked to the titular prom of this ends of prom. Mm. And uh, yeah, we've covered Eurotrip. It was uh, a painful experience for both of us <laughs> but uh yeah no it's mostly just like little mini episodes where i introduce her to the crushing painful way that we uh subject teen boys to mostly sex-driven media hmm. yeah that's that's what i grew up as you know I, I don't know if anybody knows this about just the implications of like me talking about like hey i review transmedia and other stuff like that but uh yes i grew up as a teen boy and i'm trans so this is kind of my lived experience and what I missed out on. Mm -hmm. that, that, that runs a fun gambit of like, hey, we're going to talk about the Mighty Ducks and how everything you love about the Mighty Ducks is actually Mighty Ducks 2 because Mighty Ducks 1 kind of sucks. I don't even think I've seen Mighty Ducks 1, honestly. Yeah. It's kind of a legit, quote unquote, sports drama. And then it's got a lot of the kids who went on to be in Heavyweights, the greatest film of all time. 
Oh yes, we have a, let me just rotate my camera here a little bit for, for you all to so you can appreciate our, our heavyweights poster over there in the corner. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's, is that like a custom heavyweights poster? Uh, it was a limited run heavyweights poster. I think there's only like 50 of those. Oh my God. That's wonderful to know. Yeah. That's a, that's a fan favorite in this household because it's surprisingly like fat positive, which is really, really nice. And, uh, I watched the bejesus mm. out of it growing up. It's a pretty anarchist film that and newsies are like pretty coherent radical messages and i really appreciate both of them i know i say that a lot but i'm saying it again and i know we're also talking about probably literally the opposite of heavyweights the (laughs) silence of the lambs uh there's there's a lot of appreciation in silence of the lambs for fat bodies excellent (laughs) point But the wrong kind, unfortunately. But in the 90s, that was all you got. It was that or nothing. That ties into how and why we're here, which is that Sarah loves the Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. And I have a great fondness, not to the level, I mean, this is ingrained, and we'll talk about why and how this is ingrained in Sarah's personality. This is a thing that we would cover no matter what, and we are excited to cover, but Harmony wrote an article that is at once interesting uh, by way of the take in the article, Mm -hmm. and then the response to the article is something that is absolutely... Oh, I didn't know about the response. (laughs) Oh, Sarah, there's a response. Okay, so I read this article today, and I, I would like to apologize for loving The Silence of the Lambs for half of my life, if that's something that would be helpful. Because I truly have. And this is also as someone who's like, I don't like the FBI. I don't like the whole concept of profiling serial killers. Like from the beginning, it's like gone against other sort of humanist beliefs I've had. But I'm just like, but Jodie Foster is my hero. (laughs) And because of that, like I, the way I saw myself in your article is that I totally bought the thing that the movie offers of like, Billy isn't really a transsexual. And I was like, okay, great. Fantastic. So I'm off the hook. Mm -hmm. Harmony, tell us about this article and then tell us about the response. This was uh, written in the AV Club. A Reluctant Defense of Jane Gum. Was that the title? Yeah. Tell us about this and how this came to be. Well, that's actually the third article in the last year that I've wrote about how much I have a really sordid relationship with Silence of the Lambs. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's kind of been a gradual evolution that got to the AV Club article. Mm. Back in, I want to say October, it might have been November, I wrote for Bloody Disgusting, discussing the uh, killer cross-dresser trope and is it inherently mm-hmm. problematic. And the most complicated and well-known example of that is Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. And mm. that um, kind of had then Shudder and the AV Club reach out to me and say, hey, we'd love you to write about this. The Shudder article is mostly about my personal experiences and also like ACAB, because this movie is really pro, pro-cop. pro mm. And then the AV Club article is not really about Silence of the Lambs, but boy, everyone sure thought it was, because what that article is essentially about is paralleling the trans experience of what transitioning would be like coming up through the 70s and 80s and 90s Mm. and how that really parallels the difficult experiences that would create a killer as, um, 
we'll, we'll say uh, uh, unstable, uh, a little, uh, a little bit, mm. a little bit unhinged, just a, a touch. Yeah. You know what? He needs he needs more intervention. He needs to get stabilized somehow and on some good meds. And, you know, I've always been annoyed at how when we get to his house, it's like, look at how dirty his kitchen is. And I'm like, yeah, dirty kitchen, sign of a serial killer. <laughs> but like, he's not a high functioning adult. How about that? No, but uh, Reagan did a really, really good job of axing all mental health programs in the 80s. Right. And there's a lot of indifference towards uh, trans people and those living with mental illness that, uh, unfortunately, in a like better police reformed system, Clarice would have been a, a fantastic person to help someone mm. like James Gum. Right. But... That's not the, the the system that Clarice is coming up through. Uh, Clarice is learning how to be like a super macho, like ball busting cop from all of these sexist pig type guys. Yeah. Can I tell you a theory I have? Hit me. Okay. So in the book of The Silence of the Lambs, which I think is awful, I think Thomas Harris is a terrible writer and I've been <laughs> horrified for since high school that he's been like making the rounds as a non-terrible writer and the only person who will agree with me is Martin Amos. And, <laughs> and maybe you. Um, <laughs> which should really class up the group. <laughs> but in the book, there's all this extraneous stuff, as there always is. And specifically, there's this whole thread where Clarice is being harassed by the media. And there's this Baltimore TV news lady who, like, when she busts out of your self-storage, is like, Clarice Starling, you've just been talking to the serial killer. Blah, 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 blah. And in 1986, in a pretty high-profile way, Polly Nelson, Ted Bundy's appeals lawyer, was trying to appeal his death penalty and also was harassed by the media. Buffalo Bill is clearly inspired by Ted Bundy because it's like... They took this amalgam of, like, all the different scariest serial killers Thomas Harris did and made this, like, Franken serial killer. So, like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of Ted Bundy traits in there. So after I researched that, I came to suspect that Clarice, as the serial killer whisperer, was kind of based on Ted Bundy's lawyer, Polly Nelson. And then when I interviewed her, she was like, yeah, people read my memoir and they were like, you should have just been a social worker. You weren't cut out for being a lawyer. So like, hmm. if that's true for arguably maybe the real inspiration for her, then. Yeah, I would totally support that idea. Mm. The weird thing that I have where uh, I, I, I struggle with holding two truths about Silence of the Lambs, because uh, as I mentioned in yeah. the article, Oh, God, I fucking hate this movie, like, so much. And it, it deserves to be hated. Like, I fully believe that. And I'm like, well, I can't believe I love this thing, but it's formative for me. And I'm, I don't know, tell me how to deal with that if you feel like it. See, I don't, I'm not mad at anybody for liking Silence of the Lambs because it is a very, very, very well-made film. Mm. And you make that point in your article. It's so hard to not be like, wow, like, this acting is great or something. Mm -hmm. No, there's some fantastic, really influential shots that have been reused over and over again, mm. sometimes to uh, effect that I like more, but that just could be my bias against Silence of the Lambs. For example, the uh, 2019 Black Christmas does a really good shot, basically 
copying or paying homage to when Clarice shows up at Buffalo Bill's house and there's this cut between mm. the FBI agent storming the empty house and then mm. where Clarice is. They do a very, very similar thing to that in Black Christmas 2019. And maybe I just like it more because that movie's fun and doesn't give me the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. But I neither here nor there. There's a lot of really, really influential things in Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. and I can respect that. I can also respect Clarice as a feminist icon. Right. But one thing I sort of struggle with is that everyone talks about how, like, the writing's really good or praises it for mm. a, a number of aspects pertaining to taking inspiration from various serial killers because I don't remember exactly how many, but the Buffalo Bill character is an amalgamation of, like, five to seven different killers, most notably Ed Gein and uh, Ted Bundy. Mm. The thing that I always struggle with is everyone praises it for that, but I'm like, is it original to kind of just ape all of your ideas? Not anymore. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, okay, well, people will say like, oh, Black Christmas ripped off this shot. And I was like, yeah, but also you ripped off your entire killers and characters from real life sources. And I've heard our people make arguments that, oh, well, that's that's the first time it was ever done like that. And I go, but it's not. Yeah. Ed Gein was an inspiration for Norman Bates. And that movie came out in 1960. Yeah, and then Dressed to Kill is a ripoff of Psycho. So it's like, I don't know how original that is. And I'm not going to go and like die on a hill that like, this is bad. But I, I guess portraying it in a significantly more real or at least grounded reality makes it really influential in that sense. But Mm -hmm. God, I struggle with the two truths of this movie because there's a lot of really, really good stuff in it. I've seen a lot of trans people defend this movie. Hmm. And at what point, I guess, is the juice worth the squeeze on it is, is more of where I'm hung up. Right. Because this movie did so much more damage than it did good for the cinematic world. That's such a good way to put it. Before we get into the text of the movie, I'm curious to know, like, what was the primary takeaway of this article, which I'm strongly encouraging people to read? And then how did people read it? I mean, I would say probably predictably anytime that there's a high profile article that is talking about trans experience and taking down as a result, someone's beloved thing, there was a turf response to it. So tell us a bit about what that experience was. Yeah, your main takeaway is essentially that the systems in place by either the medical system or the U.S. government set it up for decades for trans people to fail, Mm. which is so weird because Mm. Christine Jorgensen in a post-World War II world was the first high-profile trans person to transition, Mm. and she was seen as, like, space-age technology, and it was like, wow, this is mind-blowing. We can swap genders now. This is Mm. fantastic. And she became a celebrity, and through religious backlash Mm. as well as certain media depictions like Psycho, that shifted and went in the opposite direction. So you would then have throughout the 70s and 80s Basically, every system in place finding a way to harm or at least limit all good things that could happen in trans people's lives. And it was really brutal. Mm -hmm. And the takeaway of that is, hey, here's all of the reasons that you could have a character like this exist. Here's here's your steps that could produce someone this unbalanced Because unfortunately, trans people, even today, still have a lot of difficulties, elevated rates of depression and addiction and suicide and various other mental illnesses in trans people, specifically as a demographic. And 
it's not that that's related to them being trans. It's because of public opinion of them being trans. It's how they're treated socially that has basically beat people down to where they develop vices or isms. And pretty much what I was trying to say with that article was, hey, here's all of the reasons that stuff was screwed up. Here's maybe try to be a little more sympathetic and understanding towards people moving forward. Not necessarily in this case, because Buffalo Bill is too far gone. Like there was no saving this person, but there were steps that could have been made Mm -hmm. long before this character who had been trying to transition for over a decade Theoretically, you know, in, in, in my hypothesis, mm-hmm. there's some steps that could have been made that could have avoided all of this. Mm. Yes, the response was, uh, we'll say aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> and like a chorus of proving your point. The overwhelming response, I saw, and I know that you it got personal and, and threatening in different ways, but the response I saw, but people were essentially saying you were defending a killer mm-hmm. that is not a living person. Who's fictional. What's weird is I there actually was a surprisingly good response to it from a lot of people. Mm. For the most part, if you were to like look at the comments on that article, which I only skimmed because don't read the comments, it'll only make your day bad. But anytime anyone was really, really like harshly critical just at the jump, they clearly didn't read the article. They just were like, well, I'm mad about this. Mm. It was mostly a lot of people defending it going, no, but you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong, even citing the article. Sure. Yeah, it got particularly hostile amongst uh, very anti-trans women, trans space women, or comma women. Did like an owl show up outside your window with a parchment letter from J.K. Rowling? Yeah, that's <laughs> that was pretty much what was going on. And I know the term most people will say is like, oh, well, the turfs," And I'm like, I don't want to call them TERFs because that implies that they're Hmm. feminists and they're not. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, it's such a misleading term. Yeah, also, if you use the word TERF online, then, boy, they they like to uh, vanity search that and they come out of the woodwork quite aggressively when you do. Mm. What essentially this group of people who were very adamant that I was, that me as a person am a threat because they had been influenced by stuff like Silence of the Lambs. What they were saying was, I'm being sympathetic towards a killer who deserves better than they got and totally neglecting to mention the women that were killed by this killer when the whole point of the article was, hey, if you had taken steps to help this person before they got to this point, no one would have died in the first place. I really like this reading because like one of the Pat reads in the movie is that like, He was made a killer through years of systematic abuse, which Uh the implication is it's by his family. But like what you're saying is that it's by the system. It's by both. Right. I've I've never read the full book. I've definitely skimmed the parts that are relevant to me understanding the character of Buffalo Bill. And there's a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a lot more of a breakdown of James Gum's backstory in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's it's both. Directly, the writing is talking about, like, a really cruel childhood and adolescence. But outside of that, what's not being addressed is the systemic problems involved. Right, and it's being presented sort of in this monstrous way. I mean, I think it had to be the first trans character I was aware of in all media. Mm. That's how it is for a lot of people. Something that I had to deal with growing up was that my family is from the uh, greater Appalachia area. So, like... West Virginia, Tennessee, Ohio, like that's kind Mm. of where my family centered out of. And that is where the Buffalo Bill House of Horror is is set in Southern 
Ohio. Yeah. And let me tell you one thing about Ohioans. They know any piece of pop culture that is relevant to their state. They think mm. Burn On by Randy Newman is a super like pro Cleveland song. Is that about the river being on fire? Yes, because it <laughs> plays at the intro of major leagues. So they go, oh, well, you know, <laughs> it's double Cleveland. So this is fantastic. It's super like, this is one of our anthems. I'm like, you realize that's kind of making fun of you, right? You know, Portland has never figured out Portlandia was making fun of us. And it's been <laughs> like 10 years now. People in Ohio are very, very aware of the things that they want to rep. And as a result, they're very Mm. aware that Silence of the Lambs at least partially takes place in Ohio. And uh, the bigotry towards trans people, as as learned from that film, runs very deep. Uh, I was very aware of this film when I was probably less than six years old because there was a trans woman down the street from me and my parents and my neighbors mercilessly made jokes at her expense. Mm. And they were all related to like, Buffalo Bill references like, oh, do you think she has a hole in her basement? Or mm. like, do you think she like tucks her things, dances in the mirror? Pretty much all the most obvious jokes that you could imagine. Right. This would probably be the only way that this would be the only space that was allowed for trans representation in the media up until when? I mean, wh- who came after James Gum? Uh, in terms of trans horror characters? Well, no, in terms of popular trans characters anywhere in popular media. There, there's others. They're just not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the 90s was surprisingly good to drag queens because you had stuff like Priscilla. You yes. had Tu Wong Fu. The rise of RuPaul took place in the 90s, like not quite mm-hmm. to drag race extent, but, you know, drag queens were treated very, very well by the 90s. Mm-hmm. Even something like The Birdcage was, was a good depiction of drag queens, but a lot of people couldn't differentiate the two sort of so they were just conflated Mm -hmm. together but as far as like strictly trans women goes you had uh soap dish Mm. that one is soul crushing because soap dish is such an unbelievably funny movie it is so snappy and so clever and the cast is amazing and kathy moriarty is so good in it i think she's so good in everything she's in she is i love her She's fantastic in every role I've ever seen her, and I love her so much. And then, like, the last 90 seconds of the movie, they reveal that. There's no resolution. It's just like, womp, womp, and then you move on, and everybody wins except for the trans woman who's evil. Mm. And then there's, like, episodes of Law & Order where there's just, you know, murder. Oh, yeah, that was uh, the trans panic defense of, like, you get uh, a dude getting bamboozled, so you're legally allowed to murder a trans person because it puts you in a fit of rage and you couldn't control yourself. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of dead trans people on, like, crime and law shows. You have uh, the comedic barfing of, like, a naked gun part three or uh, Ace Ventura where it's like, oh, my God, this this beautiful woman actually has a penis. Now I have to have a big disgusting freak out about it was that the laces out person is that what happened in ace ventura uh yes or was that like a side joke for some reason ace ventura popped into my head when we were talking about um mighty ducks there was a lot of people Mm. who missed a pass and lost their minds in the in the early 90s (laughs) (laughs) but that's normal that's fine to do that the 90s was a wild time yeah, the uh, the laces out person was the Einhorn is a man, and then Ace Ventura freaks out and has to like take a cold shower and like gargle and plunge his own face with a toilet plunger. There's a it was it was not a good time for for trans representation. You didn't get a lot of like better sort of things going on until 
I would almost say the 2000s where it suddenly became like the hot ticket thing for uh, like trans redemption dramas at like the Oscars Mm. where you'd have like a Dallas Buyers Club or a um, Danish girl or basically glamorizing the deaths of trans women by cis actors in order to paint them in a sympathetic light, I guess. Uh, I suppose Mm. that would have started earlier with like Boys Don't Cry but it definitely caught a lot more steam in the 2000s. Yeah, I mean that's such a that's such a strange in recurring arc where in one decade a group of people is represented by way of horror and then the next decade they're kind of like sloppily represented by usually by people who are not them and then 20 years to 30 years after the last time they were seen primarily in horror they are allowed to be themselves in the media. Like that's a strange popular evolution that happens that has happened more than once in popular media. Oh, yeah. Uh, the joke that I... Oh, it's not even a joke. I guess it's just an observation. So, you know, in um, Tropic Thunder, mm. the Simple Jack character, yes? Yes. And how they reference, like, the Rain Man-style movies. Full R-word. <laughs> that is a, a doozy of a scene. But all of these all of these Rain Man-type roles where actors would get massive critical acclaim. I've always said, hey, if you made that joke nowadays, they would be playing a trans person. Yeah. Mm. This is the truth. So with regard to the responses you got, you said you got you got overwhelming positive responses, but then you got people who were lost their minds slightly in their responses. What do you think people can't handle with regard to what is being said there? <sighs> beats me i mean first of all people <laughs> can't handle anything on the internet yeah but you know b there's definitely this uh, sort of woke ism that people fear where it's like oh hey we mm. have to just retcon everything because we need to have a liberal hot take to be politically correct nowadays mm. i i don't know I'm, I'm busting in all of like the angry conservative buzzwords because i'm trying to trace their line of thought but it's it's a little beyond me uh, I'd say it's a bit of column A, column B, column C. There were definitely people who were like, how dare yeah. you tarnish our golden god of Silence of the Lambs? This movie won five Oscars and is in the Library of Congress. How dare you say it's wildly flawed? The Oscars. No bad movie <laughs> has ever gotten an Oscar. I also feel like the Silence of the Lambs like, is a victim of that thing Americans do where like, we cannot allow something to be very good and be like, see this thing, it's very good, I loved it. We have to be like, it's great, it's amazing. And it's like, it's not amazing. It is a perfectly made horror movie. It's a horror movie where all of the elements are nailed. It's very high quality. It's made by a director at the top of his game. It has some absolutely indefensible ideas about gender. (laughs) And it's based on a not good book. But, like, it's got amazing actors in it. It's got Jodie Foster acting her tiny little heart out, you know? It's like, it is a fantastic horror movie. It doesn't have to be bigger than that. And people also always want to say it's not a horror movie, which is hilarious to me. Oh, my God. The is it a horror movie or is it a thriller conversation is, like, the is Die Hard a Christmas movie conversation in that... (laughs) Nobody enjoys having that argument, and yet it constantly happens. Yeah, people just can't think of better conversations to have. And Harmony, I wonder how you would compare this to Basic Instinct, which came out like the following year. And is that like, you know, gay people are murderers, they just are kind of a story. Oh, gay people have always 
been murderers in cinema. Tale as old as time. See, that's the fun thing. At the Silence of the Lambs premiere, there was a protest, a very violent one, by um, the gay community. And it was basically them protesting the homophobia of Silence of the Lambs, not realizing, oh, it's a transphobic film. It was more of like a garden variety homophobia and how Mm. there was just constantly bad depictions of like either stereotypes or danger or what have you of queer people. And yet you would award these straight actors for doing it. Hmm. I I would say basic instinct is not nearly as it's it's not as much of a problem because your your queer people are very compelling as opposed to there are moments where the characters in basic instinct are more than just monsters. Mm. Like they're very interesting, they're sexual, there's there's appealing factors to them as opposed to Buffalo Bill. They have incredible real estate. Who And Buffalo Bill also has real estate. Gotta give him that. It's not nearly as nice. No, not nearly <laughs> on the level of, of basic instinct. Actually, one thing that I find so fascinating is that there's a lot of queer people who want to reclaim this movie because they think it's like camp excellence. Like they talk about like, oh, mm. your nice bag, but your cheap shoes. Are these people who were born in like the late 90s? Um, I would say it runs it runs a full range of ages. Uh, I've definitely noticed people like even younger than me who will defend this movie for a number of reasons. Some of them are just the cinematography or the acting. Some people think it's hilarious because let's be honest here, some of these lines like the fava beans and stuff are are funny lines. Anthony Hopkins is doing a Catherine Hepburn impression the entire time, and it's great. Exactly. This movie is really beautiful schlock, let's be honest here. It's, yes. It is, it is some major, like, campy cheese schlock. It is a B-movie made beautifully, and actually that reminds me that, like, Alex and I were reminiscing about how amazing it is that you're just watching, you're going along, and then you're like, oh, it's Roger Corman. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I wish this movie was made by Roger Corman. I'd like it a lot more. (sighs) What are your feelings on Leatherface? See, here's the fascinating thing about this. When I wrote the article for Bloody Disgusting about cross-dressing killers, because Leatherface does do a little bit of drag here and there, especially Mm -hmm. in um, Texas Chainsaw, The Next Generation. Sure. And people were like, oh my God, I can't wait to see what you have to say about Texas Chainsaw. And my response to them was, yeah, it's not even going to be in this discussion because it's such a non-issue for Leatherface. Like, that's so incidental. Totally. It's just like, that's something Leatherface does sometimes when it's not a plot point. Yeah. The original, too, where Leatherface, at least one of the three outfits is a female presenting outfit. I think it's a mom outfit and it's for cooking. The envision it is like, that's Leatherface being the mom of the family and doing dinner. Right. Like, Texas Chainsaw has a more sympathetic view of its killer than Silent Silence of the Lambs does. Uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre loves Leatherface. And also, and that's another person who's based on Ed Gein. And speaking of Ed Gein, I want to speak in defense of Ed Gein for a moment. It sickens me that Ed Gein, who only killed two people, which I realize that's two human souls, it's terrible, it's wrong, we need to help people before they kill people, But he has inspired the legacies of these fictional killers who are like, I am the chainsaw cannibal snarfler. I'm coming for you. I'm going to eat all your legs. I'm eating them right now. You know, just like the the man who inspired a million B-movies. And like from what we can tell, 
Like, yes, he was a killer, but for the most part, he was a weird Wisconsin bachelor who liked to grave rob and do scary crafts. Uh (laughs) Scary crafts. (laughs) My favorite part of this book I read on Ed Gein is when the, like, the cops come and they do the initial search of his house and they're like, Jesus Christ, there's so many objects that are made out of human remains. And they're just like, well, you don't expect that. And they find a chair (laughs) that has, is made with tanned human skin. And they're like, and they remark in the police report that the craftsmanship wasn't very good. And it's like, leave him alone. (laughs) Well, that's just hitting below the belt at that point. (laughs) Yes. It's like, how do you practice? that come on ed gain has this legacy he's inspired all these fictional killers who have inspired other fictional killers so like michael kane and dressed to kill as his grandbaby uh-huh. basically because he's based on psycho and i feel like in the silence of the lambs we see like you know he's melded to all these different serial killers including ed kemper and including ted bundy which is the i'm gonna pretend to need a cast and ask you to help me move something into my car thing Mm -hmm. and the whole also I'm going to kidnap and acquire and torture girls thing and it's like could we just keep our serial killers separate (laughs) you know and then he also you know he had a fascination for these dead female body parts and he would put there's a lot there's a lot happening there yeah I'm not going to talk about it but he did all kinds of stuff that suggests yeah that he was sort of he was experimenting with some stuff around gender, and I just don't want to connect that to Ted Bundy and his horrible thing, which is very much based on him just being this, like, demonic Archie. <laughs> <laughs> so so what's most frustrating about me with Gein is that even the cross-dressing aspect of Gein is pretty much all just lies at this point. It's all tabloid nonsense. Really? I want to know. So... I actually, I was really curious about this. Prior to me writing about Silence of the Lambs or any of this at all, I asked on Twitter, it's like, hey, uh, Ed Gein, tell me some, I asked like a kind of innocuous question. Like, You went to Ed Gein Twitter and you were like, hey, Ed Gein Twitter. <laughs> Basically, yes. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and people just gave me all of these things that Ed Gein did as a criminal. And then I looked him up and went, mm. yeah, like 80% of these aren't true. Mm. The guy didn't really do that much in terms of violence as far as we can tell, right? Most of the things with Ed Gein, from what I'm probably going to get my facts slightly wrong on this one, and then the true crime people are going to come for me. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, after Ed Gein got arrested in, what was it? I think 60, 59, 58, something like that, whatever. There was an article published by like some random guy who just decided on a whim to say, oh, there's Merkins uh, made of female pubic things. That must mean that Gein wants to become a woman and cross-dresses and does all this stuff. And it was totally not factual. Uh, Harmony, you've mentioned Black Christmas. Is that the movie that you, you mentioned earlier? The 2019 one, yeah. On the show, you talked Freaky, which I mm-hmm. I loved. Like, what horror movies do you feel have done the, the complicated uh, nature of, of, of incorporating gender in some way into the horror of the movie. Like, that's a tricky fucking situation. Hmm. Who's done it well? Uh, there's a lot of examples of uh, dealing with gender. Freaky is a very, very fun one hmm. because what everyone said, when that movie came out, there was a lot of controversy from the trailer with trans people saying, uh, this is just the hot chick, but it's a slasher. And I go, first of all, the hot chick is very fun. How dare you? <laughs> 
Freaky is not the hot chick because in the hot chick, Rob Schneider is playing essentially a gay stereotype, but there's some cross-dressing involved. Mm-hmm. That's that's what that whole characterization is. Freaky is Vince Vaughn copying the mannerisms and inflections of a teen girl to essentially swap with that one. And it plays with a lot of gendered expectations. I really, really love the uh, the backseat scene that happens in that movie in the car. Oh, I think that's I love super that. affirming and really nice. One of my favorite examples of a trans anything in any movie is a, a teen vampire movie called Bit that I find any excuse <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> because uh, it's directed by a friend of mine, Brad Michael Elmore. It stars Nicole Maines. And it's about basically uh, intersectional queer vampires who strike down internet trolls and stuff like that. Vampires are always so ahead of the curve culturally. Oh, vampires are never heterosexual. They are always queer in right. some way. <laughs> Except on the Vampire Diaries. Oh. <laughs> I do want to speak to the fact that Nicole Maines is Maine, the state of Maine's most famous person since Stephen King. (laughs) Really? That is a good fact. Nicole Maines is a huge deal in Maine. Is it because people from Maine, you know, love celebrating people from Maine, but also love an excuse to say the word Maine a second time? (laughs) There was that and there was also like a landmark trans rights lawsuit that came out of Nicole Maines. But uh, but yeah, I think it's a both and situation. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I love Bit. I think it's fantastic because it it, a lot of that movie, people see it as like, oh, men are evil. And I go, no, it's about power corruption. And that's the heart of the movie. And it's fantastic. Mm. I really think the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as problematic as it is involving like consent, I think it deals very well with gender. Mm. (laughs) Jesus. In the first run through, I I just have such innocuous it's almost like muscle memory. Like Rocky Horror is just like in my yeah. brain and in my spirit and in my soul. And then showing it for the first time, you're really reminded of this consent. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that feel you notice different things. If you're watching it in a house as yeah. opposed to in a theater in the middle of the night. Yeah, absolutely. But the culture of Rocky Horror does such a good job of just like making abnormal stuff normal sure. to the point where they did the uh, the Rocky Horror Live thing starring Laverne Cox, which I don't think Rocky Horror Live is very good, but the fact that it aired like on Fox or whatever, and it used to just yeah. be yeah. like this underground midnight movie really says to how much people are willing to just put on a corset and just go out into the night <laughs> to go see a movie. Sure. Uh, one of my One of my favorite responses I think I've ever gotten on Twitter was me saying that uh, Frankenfurter is actually a n- not a problematic trans killer because the Frank's cross-dressing or gender is never like a butt of a joke. Mm. In fact, people who have an issue with that are like the virgins who would get brought up on stage at a Rocky Horror screening to do ridiculous, you know, stunts. So like, really, you're making fun of the Brad and Janet characters. But someone said, um, actually, Frankenfurter isn't a killer. I mean, he killed Eddie. Twice, but like that doesn't make him a killer. I'm like, that's, <laughs> um, um, that's actually exactly what makes someone a killer. Well, it does. But he made a man. But also, so's Riff Raff. <laughs> uh, you know, it just—it was a rainy night. It was the night Nixon resigned. A lot of stuff happens in America. <laughs> 
what media do you want to exist in the world, like generally and as far as trans representation? Like if, if you had the magic wand, what would you make happen? Just any kind of thing ever? Yes. <sighs> so in general, the movie that I want the most Mm-hmm. ever is I want a bona fide trans revenge flick mm. because the revenge genre, either, you know, just general revenge, like, um, like a promising young woman or, you know, is revenge for someone or, you know, a rape revenge film. Mm-hmm. Trans people are so often victimized and yet they never get the opportunity to actually like stick up for themselves in almost any depiction mm-hmm. or at least extract uh, any sort of uh, vengeance or any kind of uh, catharsis. A movie that I absolutely love to pieces is called Assassination Nation. Mm. And it's made by the same guy who does Euphoria. And boy, that man has the, the style that the cinematography of those, mm. of, those me- of those pieces of work is outstanding. But I love that movie because it has a really good girl gang that's intersectional and has like a trans woman played by Harry Neff in it. And I am frustrated, but I get why they do it because at the end of the movie, everyone is like just covered in blood and shooting guns and taken down like internet trolls and fuck boys. And it's amazing. <laughs> and the trans character almost gets hanged and then decides I don't need to kill the guy who almost hanged me because I'm better than you. And you know what? Mm. Maybe I don't want to be better than people all the time because (laughs) I I get what we're going with here because trans people have been treated so poorly for so long that you kind of need to force the pendulum to swing in the opposite direction so that, you know, they're not a threat. They're not exacting things. We're we're good-natured whoever's, but... I just want us to get to a point where I can just exist like a person and I can have the same luxury of the writing as anyone else where it's like, hey, someone did me wrong and now I'm going to have my own faster pussycat kill kill sort of thing about it. And yeah, we're not there yet. And I accept that Uh, the closest thing we have to that is a really awful movie called Ticked Off Trannies with Knives. And it's directed by a dude. And that sounds like a Roger Corman film. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was. It's best known for uh, being an early thing for Willem from RuPaul's Drag Race. Hmm. And there are some drag queens who have transitioned either before or since. But it's really poorly made and it's done by a by a guy and I don't like his depictions of how he decided to do this super low budget shit film hmm. and, that's the only thing I've got, and I deserve more than that, and I'm salty. You do. Everyone deserves, like, enough movies about themselves that they can, like, ignore a bunch of them and just be like, I don't feel like watching that one. This is the societal privilege everyone should get, is that you should be able to depict someone who looks like you as a murderer and not, like, swing an entire cultural pendulum to the idea that everyone who looks like you is a murderer after all. Like... You know, because Gone Girl is a movie where actually I've been reading a lot of domestic thrillers lately and the nice white lady being like, I'm evil, too, actually, (laughs) is like not the twist people seem to think it is. (laughs) But like it keeps working because there is this idea of like, 
you know, nice white cis ladies wouldn't hurt a fly. It's always surprising when they kill someone, even though they kill people all the time. Uh-huh. I want you to have that. I want society to get there. <sighs> if only, but... That's just not where it is, because unfortunately, when you're like a marginalized person, you are the only point of reference for a lot of people as far as like an example of a community. In Ohio, I was the only trans person that a lot of people knew. Mm. And so their entire understanding of like, oh, what's a trans person like is me. I had somebody who I used to be friends with who they were at a party and someone in was like, hey, I want you to meet my my one trans friend, Betty, or whatever her name was. And he goes, oh, I love Harmony. She's great. This will be fantastic. And then the next day he's texting me going, this person sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that just because I'm cool, another trans person would by default be cool. And that wasn't the case. <laughs> Did you did you grow up liking horror, Harmony? I have always loved horror. Since I married my wife and since we started dating, I've definitely like comfortably formed my niche in horror. Mm. But it's always pretty much been my my primary genre, though not in a in a spooky kind of way because I don't get scared. So I tend to like favor horror comedies or um, mm. like things that aren't trying to be funny or are or um, transitional horror. So like. Something like a Monster Squad or a Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Like, give me spooky mm. children's movies. Monster Squad is the best, yeah. Oh, my God, I love that movie. <laughs> and it's so much better than The Goonies, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah, this is a controversial show. We go there. <laughs> we're just, we're just going to have so many people mad at us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But, no, I've always loved horror. It's just that's definitely the, uh, as far as working professionally goes, that's definitely where I've carved out. My little, my little hole that I, I reside in most of the time. Oh, well, this is an out of format episode or how do, do we even want to approach the daddy question? Cause that's hard in this context. Oh, I know who the daddy is. Who is the daddy? Well, who is the father in Silence of the Lambs? I would imagine Hannibal is kind of the father. Clarice's dead dad. Yeah. Oh yeah. Clarice's dead dad. <laughs> I forgot. You know, I look at it as she's got these competing male mentors, competing daddies, yes. rock 'em sock 'em daddies, if you will, <laughs> in the form of Jack Crawford and Hannibal Lecter. My take on her character, which I love and identify with, is that she's, you know, in this world of male power and dick fighting. And she's like, I want to get to the bottom of the serial killer thing. And Hannibal's like, why? That's <laughs> how he talks. Yes. Because you want to advance your career like everyone else. And she's like, no, I just really want to find this missing lady. I actually care about it. And he's like, oh, my God, this is weird. I didn't think this was a thing. And I also haven't talked to a woman in eight years. So that might have something to do with it. And her superpower is just being a woman, <laughs> which is like another interesting point on gender. But. I would cast a vote for Ardelia, who is either a very supportive friend or maybe she and Clarice are just in a relationship quietly. And that's what I tell myself maybe to salvage this film. <laughs> also, it is like maybe the best piece of propaganda ever produced. But yeah, I would nominate Clarice's bosom buddy Ardelia as the daddy because she's the, she's the source of love and support for Clarice. The thing that I picked up on Clarice this time in the introduction of her that I, I had not picked up before and, and maybe to some extent this is just meant to rationalize that would you call this copaganda? <laughs> yeah. When we're introduced to her by who what is her mentor's name? Jack Crawford. 
Alex watched this movie earlier today, by the way. He watched it two hours ago. I could not for the life of me remember anyone's name. But the, um, when we're introduced, Jack Crawford says this thing about her that she, that she, when she was a student, took him to task in the classroom over the FBI's civil rights record. And I was like, this is a really interesting conundrum of a person. <laughs> and apparently got an A- minus because of it. A-, a minus, sir. <laughs> <laughs> If you had to choose a daddy in this movie you hate to the bottom of your soul, who would you pick, Harmony? I mean, if I'm going to pick someone who's who's a daddy type just by on look, it's it's Charles Napier, who is the man who gets handcuffed in mm. the cage with the stone jaw. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has the look of a daddy. Hannibal Lecter is not allowed to be a daddy because he is a uh, prissy little queen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. But, like, that's the wild thing is that both Hannibal Lecter and Clarice are coded to be extremely gay. Right. Yeah. That's a frustration with this movie is because it's like, ah, yes, the cis queer people are turning against the the the, the trans queer mm. person because it will benefit them. Hannibal's like, I can be rehabilitated. I just want to look at the sea. <laughs> I liked James' performance so much of the time. Like she's initially calling down into the pit before she does Mm -hmm. the sort of like notorious like yell and it gets the hose again. I just like love that mid-level shot of her standing there with the dog looking down annoyed. Yes. Not a perfect daddy description, but like (laughs) I will pick Buffalo Bill as the daddy in this movie. There's nothing more daddy-like than keeping girls in a pit in your basement while you do crafts. You're just like, be quiet, I'm doing crafts. (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Why Are Dads? Thank you so much for joining us. It was a wonderful time. Uh, I want to thank Harmony Colangelo for coming on and talking about her article, talking about her perspective, talking about her experience. It was uh, it was great to have Harmony here. You should check out Harmony's podcast, This Ends at Prom, of course. Harmony's written a book of cocktails called A Year of Queer Cocktails, which I hope that you will check out as well. Thanks so much to Carolyn Kendrick, who produces the show and is our music director. Carolyn makes the show sound great. That's the truth. Carolyn works so, so hard on these episodes. We are so grateful for her, to her. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com and all of her social media stuff and the places to follow along and check her out. Please support everyone involved with the show. We so much appreciate it. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats. Thank you so much, Lesh. I love hearing your beats every time we listen to the show. It's so nice having you involved. Next week, join us for a conversation about Guardians of the Galaxy with Fangirl Jean. Uh, We had a great chat about Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Patreon as well. Uh, Wire Dads for each of those. Patreon.com slash Wire Dads. That's it. That's all you need to know from us right now. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you.